fellow writers, you have found Catherine's Corner of the Scripturian Society, where we discuss specific books from the writer's perspective. Here with me, Carissa, a.k.a. Lewis, a.k.a. Catherine, we discuss the writer's side of reading to analyze some of those specifics that makes a book work or not work on a literary level. If you have yet to read the book in the title of this episode and you don't want any spoilers, enter at your own risk because this episode will be full of spoilers for both the first book in this series and, of course, this actual book itself. Um, Otherwise, whether you're a writer here for advice or a reader here for more content on a book you loved, welcome. Today we're going to be talking about The Ballad of Never After by Stephanie Garber. Here's the thing about Stephanie Garber. She is such a consistent horse to bet on. You know, she always delivers. It's so good. Her titles are so magical, and the spines of her books are so pretty, and I feel lovely setting them on my shelves. Um, But let's talk about the actual story here. The Ballad of Never After is the sequel to Once Upon a Broken Heart. I didn't do an episode on book one because I read it before we started the podcast, but this was such a great second installment, it demands an episode. Um, This entire series is the sequel series to Caraval, so we're getting deep into the world here, but I don't think I'll be doing any spoiling for Caraval. It's separate enough for that, so... I don't know, unless you thought Jax was going to end up with one of the characters from Caraval, there are really no spoilers here. Um, And honestly, I hadn't read the Caraval series or Once Upon a Broken Heart in a while, so I had forgotten most of what happened. So we will literally pick up the summary in book two, Ballad Never After. Evangeline is our main character. She has married the Prince of the North, but he has been put under a curse of suspended sleep. Um, He's in this sleep because Jax, who is one of the fates, um, the fates are this world's version of basically Greek gods, Um, Jax has done this to manipulate Evangeline into opening what is called the Valor Arch. No one knows what's behind it, there are rumors, but no one knows for sure, and Evangeline doesn't want to open it because she doesn't want to give Jax what he wants because he's proven himself untrustworthy in the past. But Apollo, her husband, gets twice more cursed, once with a mirror curse on her so that if one of them gets injured, so does the other, and a second time, or a third time overall, um, with the archer and the fox curse, which forces him to kill his true love, which means he's trying to kill Evangeline. And she needs to find these four gems to ultimately open this arch to save him. So she goes back and forth on whether she wants to do this or not. Um, You know, save Apollo, don't save Apollo, give Jax what he wants, don't give Jax what he wants. And she's sort of falling for Jax this whole time. But there's a lot of magic and parties and romantic tension and twists that I want to talk about. First off, let's have a general discussion about sequels. As far as I can remember, the romance and world building and themes of true love and magic and plot are all at about the same level, if not better, than those in the first book. It feels the same in vibe, but with escalated stakes, which is really what you want for a second book in a series. You certainly don't want it to feel derivative of book one. Something's going to have to change. Uh, But you do want it to hold the character of the original, and I think Garber nails that here in several ways. One, there is a consistent fairy tale atmosphere to both books. Garber makes up her own fairy tales, and though they're reminiscent of the accessible ones you probably grew up with, um, bearing similarities to Cinderella or Rumpelstiltskin, 
they are distinct to this world. That means that much of the history and backstory is being built for you from scratch and compiled throughout the books. More and more details are layered onto each story, from the fates to the tales like The Archer and the Fox, so everything feels like an expansion in book two rather than a completely separate idea, right? So instead of just each book having its own set of fairy tales, the fairy tales we started in book one continue and grow and take on like rumor and different dimensions um, in, in book two in The Battle of Never After. This does admittedly require a lot, a lot of world building work, but making up fairy tales can be kind of a fun, sporadic thing you can do as you're planning. You don't have to sit down for hours on end to do it. You can just do them in little spurts. And if you're stumped as to how, study some existing ones. So like I said, Garber's fairy tales bear resemblance to real ones. So start with adding some twists to your existing favorites. Change the names or the locations for your favorite fairy tale. Um, come up with various versions of that same one, like real fairy tales have, like there are several versions of Cinderella and Little Red Riding Hood and so on. Um, come up with misconceptions and contradictions, and that's all excellent for your world building, and it's also really fun, and like I said, something you can do in spurts. Um, you can plan this over time. It doesn't have to be something you sit down and do on the hour, like figuring out the plot. Um, Obviously, Garber is writing a very fairy tale-esque book series here, and you might not be doing that, which is fine, but you can take the same principle and apply it to the history of whatever world you're building. Um, there are always multiple versions of historical events, of current events, of urban legends. Frame some of these for your series and don't tell them in story form. Tell them as backstory being revealed and pondered at and lied about for the plot of your book. When you get to book two, don't start a brand new fairy tale. Weave in details from the ones you've already started, giving them new versions and little twists to keep that same atmosphere going. Two, the locations are all very similar. So both books take place at various balls with gowns and champagne and classical music and all varieties of dancing and gossip. And these settings are spectacular. I enjoy them. But they're also familiar by the time book two rolls around. Readers are put in this position where we can enjoy the details, but not get as caught up in them because we've seen a version of it before. We kind of know what's going on. We can fill in some gaps here. So the plot and the characters can then take center stage. If you listen to the Kingdom of the Wicked episode a couple weeks back, um, this is basically what I think was missing in that series, some kind of continuous setting, some follow-through in setting from the first book. Even though Evangeline is moving around, she's going to technically different places within the city, the atmosphere of the places she goes is the same, not just with Garber's lyrical writing style, but also with their secrets and magic and gardens and food and why she's there and all of that kind of stuff. There are a few repeated locations, but mostly it's the atmosphere, and it really works to propel the plot in that she's moving physically, but also to keep us grounded in the same story because it feels cohesive with that first book. So I think a similar setting, but not an exact setting, can be something that really helps your sequel to work. And lastly, in terms of sequels, uh, the characters maintain their quirks and their growth in the second book. Evangeline keeps her rose gold hair, which is such a fun detail that actually contributes to the story, and she therefore wears the same color palette all the time. She does vacillate a lot back and forth on her goals and her hills to die on, but this keeps her character 
consistent. She is growing and learning things, but then she'll backtrack a little bit, and that's pretty normal for people. People do that. You can realize something one day and fall into the same ditch the next. Um, So her general trajectory is upward, but she's making the same Evangeline mistakes in new ways, right? She doesn't become an entirely new person for book two. In fact, book two takes place only hours, I think, after the end of book one, and that's something I personally love. Uh, Gaps can work for certain sequels uh, between book one and book two, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes I want to know what's happening exactly next so I can see that character growth rather than being told about it from afar. This way, Evangeline, as main character, doesn't become too frustrating in her mistakes because they're understandable as hers. She's not making the exact same mistakes, but the ones she's making are very in character, right? And this is a great way to do YA without making it annoying. Uh, Give your characters growth, but not in a straight line. People make mistakes pretty regularly, especially teens who lack life experience, and they make mistakes that are particular to them most of the time. So your characters should never reach a point where they're perfect, and they can overcome an obstacle, but maybe certain character quirks, like Evangeline's optimistic romantic commitment to true love, should continue to cause them similar problems, even once they've overcome different ones, Um, even past when they should have learned their lesson. You can know something is right and still choose wrong, and that's something Evangeline does a lot, but it's something that's very consistent with her character. So she, again, she's making different mistakes, but in-character mistakes based on the same character flaw. Also on character quirks, I love how Jax maintains his various colored apples he's always eating. They're not mentioned so often that it becomes, again, annoying, but you always know there's one in his hand. Uh, Something is wrong if he doesn't have one for a scene or two, and that thread, along with other character consistencies, holds the story together with the first installment. Jax, as an immortal, is a little different than Evangeline. He doesn't have as much character growth, Um, so most of his intrigue is in how his backstory is being revealed little by little. Um, I'll talk more on this later, but I want to mention it now because this is a consistent thread even through the Caraval books. So Jax's backstory is one of the things that makes the world building feel coherent because it's a pretty continuous aspect of all of the books. Um, You too can do this with a personal favorite character. If you want to write multiple series or stories operating within the same world, you can sort of fold them all together with this background character that has so much history and an immortal life that new details can always be coming to the forefront. Kind of like Magnus Bane in the Shadowhunter Chronicles, if you've read those. This character acts sort of like an anchor for the world rather than just the series. Um, And I think that's pretty cool. And it's not hard to pull off if you pick one character, make him immortal and intriguing, and then set him up to be this, like, mischievous observer or meddler in every series. Um, He can't change too much, right? There should be some growth, but not, like, a ton because he's immortal. Uh, But you can still always be adding details from the past to explain who he is now um, and then include those smaller character growths in the present. Um, And that's a really... That's a pretty cool way to mark your world's history, um, because this character will have been there for it, um, as well as to provide intrigue to the story you're currently telling. Okay, moving on to the recap at the beginning of the book. So, like I said, it had been a while since I'd read book one, and the way Garber summarized book one for us here was so creative. I really enjoyed it. Um, Typically, books that are sequels will sometimes have, like, this very telling style 
like show don't tell it will be telling you what happened in the first book to remind you and it can feel kind of sloppy or just like uninteresting and you end up skimming it ballad of never after starts in the form of evangeline writing a letter to her future self to remind herself of all the reasons she shouldn't trust Jax. so in this way we get a recap of what happened in book one in a way that doesn't feel like a reminder it feels like it's actually a piece of this second story of course she's writing herself this letter it's only logical good for her it is a summary reminding us of what's been going on and how long it's been since book one and where Evangeline is emotionally. But it also seems to play a certain role in book two, telling us where she is now and giving us some foreshadowing about where she's going. This is not a great way to start a book one most of the time. You don't necessarily want to start with a letter, um, but it works here because it's a book two. And it also works here because Garber is consistent in inserting these scraps of paper or letters or invitations as graphics in her books. This is something I find so much fun, and I wish more authors would do this. First of all, it typically makes books feel like they're reading faster, since you're flipping pages more often as a general rule. But secondly, it also adds character to the world. It inherently includes a certain font, a certain kind of paper edge, a certain voice, and this can break up a book to make it faster paced and also to generate that sense of coherence for a sequel. While we're on this topic of visual elements in novels, let's also talk about Evangeline's death scene and how effective that was. Basically, when she dies, the following page just reads THE END in all caps. I actually thought I had reached the end of the book and thought to myself, what? No, this can't be it. Luckily, I turned to the page, always, always flip through those back pages in case there's something interesting or necessary there. Um, and, and when I turned the page, I found, of course, the following chapter from a completely separate point of view, a super interesting point of view, by the way, that makes it seem like the fairy tales in Garber's universe are sentient in some way. Then after that, we go back to the normal chapters where she's brought back to life, so then she can be a point of view again. Um, the point of view change is obvious in the physical writing on the page. It's not just as you're reading it, you understand. It's, phys it's visually there, right? It forces you to stop, to think, to let what just happened sink in. And it's a creative point of view strategy that is both demanded by the seriousness of the situation, her death, and also useful to make it impactful for the reader. It works on both ends. It's like cause and effect wrapped up into one. Nothing is bigger than a main character dying. So if it's going to happen, and especially if she's going to come back, let's treat it with its proper uh, dramatic respect, right? And give it a dramatic on-page moment. When the visual reflects what's going on in the story, um, it doubles the impact, right? Like I said, it is both the impact itself and demanded by the impact. As a general rule, I wouldn't get too creative with formatting choices in your novel, but if it's a big moment like this, a moment that will change everything from here on out, it can be a great way to catch a reader's attention. Use the page itself, the page the reader is seeing, not just the words on that page, to communicate the story. It's sort of like um, a poem about a winding road that shows up literally on the page as a winding road made out of the words. The words make the winding road. It's that extra impact. It's it's a tough thing to translate to audiobooks or reading aloud, um, even sometimes to ebooks, so ebooks can do it easier. But honestly, I think that's one of the very things 
audiobooks are going to miss in general. Actually looking at the pages is a huge piece of the reading experience, so utilize what you have and make it fun for your readers. Give their eyes something interesting to see every so often, not just the words to create the images in their brain. Um, But do it when the story demands it, because if you use it too much, then it loses its impact, right? So only for big moments. Um, Kind of like the point of view change here. I think the entire book is from Evangeline's point of view, except that one chapter that makes it feel like the fairy tales are sentient. And so that chapter has a special impact. It forces you to kind of sit up straight and pay more attention, which you would only want to do for a big moment, like a death scene. All right, I don't have a smooth transition here, so we're just shifting topic now. Um, I really want to know why Jax eats the apples. And and where does he get them? In so many colors. Like I said above, we learn so much more about Jax in this book, and I love it. He is fascinating. My current theory about the apples. I'm going <clears> to... <throat> I'm going to make a prediction. Um, my current theory about the apples is that he has to eat them to keep his immortality somehow because he didn't have to eat them in the hollow, which uh, that inn where curses don't last. Is, is immortality a curse? Maybe he has to maintain some kind of curse with the apples, but the only reason he would choose to maintain a curse is if it's somehow keeping him alive, right? Um, the fact that he doesn't have to eat the apples in the hollow implies that the apples are a curse, in some form. Maybe he really hates apples, and he's cursed to only ever eat them, Uh, but I think it's probably something cooler, like the apples give him his power, because he seems to conjure them literally out of nowhere, but then can they be the source of his power if he's conjuring them? Because he would need the apples to conjure more apples. Um, I don't know. That's my rough working theory, I guess. I also just generally love learning more about the relationships between all of the fates. So Lala is interesting, but I don't trust her, even if Evangeline does. And Chaos is fantastic because we know we can't trust him, but I think there's something else going on there. Uh, Their roles in the pantheon, I guess it is, are so unique because they all bear their own curses. It's kind of this acknowledgement that immortality would be a curse, which I thematically really like. But I also just really enjoyed seeing more of uh, Chaos's background here. Uh, he it, He's basically cursed. It's implied in this book to be a vampire after his mother brought him back to life. So none of the fates are, like, enjoying their immortality, if that makes sense. Um, and I find that so interesting, and it creates conflict between them and intrigue, right? Um Chaos's backstory and Jax's and Lala's are so intertwined. And so it was also cool to see them act like actual friends in this story because they go kind of back and forth. They seem like they're enemies or like annoyed with each other, but they were actually kind of friendly in this book. Um, I do think the Fates backstories is probably one of the most compelling elements of this world. Not that it's boring otherwise. I just, I think it's my favorite element. Uh, Mysterious characters are the bomb. They allow for tension to maintain even when the plot has come to a slower pace because you as the writer can switch focus between fast-paced plot details and those character details. So even when the plot is slowing down, the intrigue is not because we're learning more about the characters in the interim. Like when Jackson and Evangeline were in the hollow for who knows how long. Technically, not much plot-wise happened, but we learned so much about Jax that it never felt slow. And we're establishing relationships, which also makes it feel like it's not slow. Um, So if you are a writer that generally struggles with pacing, 
I would suggest mixing up your plot and character details so readers can go from focusing on one to the other and looking forward to more of each rather than blurring them together in the same scenes because then they can sometimes cease to make sense or feel cluttered. You do want every scene to be somehow plot relevant and character development relevant, but you can focus on one or the other and go switch back and forth. It can be tempting to keep things going at a rapid speed or to slow things down to give readers a break and accidentally descend into scenes not relevant to the plot at all, but characters and plot are all linked. So if you feel like you've been plot heavy or character heavy for a while, just switch it to the opposite and let the story take it from there and I think it'll work perfectly fine. Um, let's see. I I think that's all I have to say about The Ballad of Never After. I loved the quest for the gems and all the little twists and turns and everyone's shifting goals and secrets and mindsets. It's hard to pin down, like, exactly uh, what Stephanie Garber did there to give you advice, but, like, if you haven't read these books, you should, because they do twists and turns really well, where things will shift, but it will feel ultimately like the goal remains the same, so you're getting surprised, but you don't feel like you're being thrown around with the wind, right? Um, I'm still wondering who that short little librarian was at the beginning, um, are we going to find that out? He was there for like 10 seconds and then he disappeared and we were never given any explanation and he wasn't there when we opened the Valor Arch at the end. So I don't know. Um, I also really ship Jackson Evangeline. Um, I shouldn't because if you know anything about me, you guys know I tend to like the friends to lovers vibe, not the enemies to lovers vibe. You know, I like the nice guy, the good guy, not the mischievous uh, bad boy type, which Jax is. No matter what Ash says, Jax is a bad boy, okay? I I hold to that. Um, but, but who the heck is Apollo, right? Because he, like, turns strange at the end. Um, is he a fate, too? I, I mean, you would think Jax would recognize him, but they were friends, and maybe it's just never come up. Um, can fates have kids? Is he like a demigod version of something in this world? Um, I don't know. Apollo's doing something weird. So maybe he is the bad boy and me liking Jax was actually a hint of this all along. That would make sense to me, but I still hold Jax as a bad boy, Ash, so leave me alone. Maybe Apollo has been cursed for a fourth time. Is, is this even him acting? Right? Because it, I don't know, how long has it been since you guys read the book? He basically, like, erases Evangeline's memory on purpose so that she'll love him instead of Jax. So yeah, that ending was stressful. Uh, I wish the third book was out already, but it's not. Uh, Either way, regardless, I would definitely recommend the series for readers and writers both. I think writers, there are some unique elements in these books that are done really well, and I think you can learn from them. But also, they're just really fun to read, and I can't wait for the third book. So that's all I have to say, I think. Um, Thank you for listening, and I will see you on the next page. 